Maine's Political Pulse is made possible by listeners and by Lee Auto Malls, featuring all electric vehicles from Nissan and Toyota in stock now. Learn more at leeauto.com electric. Welcome or uh, welcome back to Maine's Political Pulse. I'm Erwin Gratz with Maine Public's Statehouse Bureau Chief and Chief Political Reporter Steve Missler and political reporter Kevin Miller. Governor Mills this week unveiled how she'd like to spend the rest of the money that will be available for the next two-year budget. Kevin, what's in this budget proposal? Yeah, thanks, Erwin. Uh, so we're still waiting to see the, the granular details of what's in the proposal. But from the highlights that the governor's office has put out so far, we can see that basically she wants to spread around uh, several hundred millions of dollars on things that we're already mostly hearing a lot of talk about at the state house or that are in the news. It would include about $100 million for affordable housing or emergency shelter uh, programs for the homeless. There's about $31 million in there to support Maine's EMS services, which are really struggling financially and to find paid or volunteer EMTs and firefighters. But she also wants to put more money towards workforce training, child care tax credits, uh, school construction, drinking water infrastructure. Most of these would be one-time expenditures, so they're not going to obligate the legislature to continue paying the same levels in future budgets. But I guess one of the things that's most interesting about this is what's not in this budget. Yeah, indeed. And there's no money set aside for tax cuts. And that's definitely the most notable thing for Republicans who, as we've talked about here before, have really been pushing hard for some sort of income tax cuts this year. The reason that Governor Mills and the legislature are in this position to be able to decide how to spend or not spend this additional money is that the state is continuing to run a surplus. In other words, the state's taking in more money from income taxes, sales taxes, corporate taxes than these revenue forecasting gurus that we have projected. And what the Republicans have been saying for months now is that means Mainers are, are overtaxed and they deserve a tax break to deal with inflation and rising costs. But Mills and the Democrats in the legislature say there are just so many of these other needs that we just talked about and that this money really should be spent there. And uh, here's the way Senate President Troy Jackson put it to me yesterday when I asked him about whether tax cuts are even really on the, the negotiating table. I mean, I would say no. I mean, you know, we are talking about things like EMS. We're talking about things about housing. We're talking about things about child care. I mean, the business community across the state has not come to me and asked for income tax cuts. They've asked for workers, employers, employees. And, and you get that by helping them with housing. You get that by helping them with child care. I mean, that is what we should work on as priorities, Republicans and Democrats. So, yeah, but Republicans really aren't happy about this, and we'll definitely hear from them in the coming weeks. Yeah, and Democrats pushed through the continuing services budget several weeks ago on their own, but kind of implicit in that action was that a Part 2 budget bill might need Republican support so it could take effect in July. Steve Missler, that doesn't actually have to happen, does it? No, it does not, especially if Mills and the Democratic leaders believe that the second part of the budget isn't really an emergency. If that's the case, they could push through the proposal on their own, and it could go into effect 90 days after they adjourn the legislature. The only reason a supermajority would be needed is if they want part two of the budget to go into effect with the governor's signatures immediately. Now, two years ago, when they pulled a similar maneuver, enacting a continuing services budget early to fund government operations, they did deem the second part of the budget to be an emergency, 
And that's why they negotiated with Republicans to make it happen. They might not have to do that this time, especially if Republicans hold out because there's no income tax cut in few, if any, prospects for one. Hmm. All right. Well, these days, big money seems to have as much say in government policy as elected officials. Case in point, the Opportunity Solutions Project. Steve, what can you tell us about this group and its goals? So the Opportunity Solutions Project is a Florida-based nonprofit that's basically an arm of the Foundation for Government Accountability, a group that's been in the national news a lot lately for its attempts to loosen child labor laws and tighten voting restrictions. The groups are almost identical in leadership. The chief distinction between the two is really their tax status. Opportunity Solutions is limited in its political operations because of its designation, while FGA has far more latitude in that regard. Both organizations have an active lobbying presence in Maine. In fact, both groups have extensive ties to Maine, but I'll talk about that in just a minute. Opportunity Solutions has backed bills that would repeal Maine's ranked choice voting law, and just this week, a bill that would prohibit outside groups from donating money to municipalities for election administration. Both of those initiatives are part of a national playbook that's being utilized in state legislatures across the country. And it's funded by conservative mega donors like shipping magnet Richard Uline and Leonard Leo, who is largely credited for the current composition of the U.S. Supreme Court's conservative majority and who has launched an initiative to replicate that success in other arenas, including state legislatures. The Foundation for Government Accountability, or FGA, has reportedly received funding from both. And Erwin, the FGA leadership, including its CEO, Taryn Bragdon, has extensive ties to Maine. Bragdon once led the Maine Heritage Policy Center, which is now called the Maine Policy Institute, and he helped uh, Governor Paula Page pick his cabinet back in 2011, and people associated with his organization landed lofty positions in state government, including at DHHS, the Department of uh, Education, and on LePage's staff. In fact, one of the people who testified this week was a former advisor to LePage. All right, shifting uh, gears, solar energy is exploding across Maine, uh, a hopeful sign for the attempts to rein in climate change causing emissions. But Kevin is going to tell us now about someone who thinks the state is trying too hard to encourage the development of solar. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so pretty much anybody who's driven anywhere in Maine over the past year or two has probably seen these big solar farms that are popping up in farm fields and along interstate exits. And this boom is really happening in large part because these larger scale, they're known as community solar developers, can get electricity credits from our utilities. But the person that you hinted at there in the question is William Harwood, who's the head of uh, Maine's Office of Public Advocate. And he's been really sounding this alarm about this explosion of solar farms and saying that it's really going to start costing ratepayers big money very soon because CMP and Versant are two big utilities. They're, they're not giving these credits away for free. The costs are spread out among ratepayers. And what Mr. Harwood says is that the so-called net energy billing program that the legislature set up to do this about four years ago, that it's paying rates to these solar farms that are much higher and much too generous. Um, you're talking 20 cents a kilowatt hour or more for energy that only costs them potentially a few cents to generate. And then he estimated this week that unless the program has changed, ratepayers are going to be paying uh, up to $220 million a year. And that translates into about $275 a year for ratepayers. 
So the solar industry, not surprisingly, is not happy at all with what he's saying. And they're accusing Mr. Harwood of pretty much echoing the cost projections that CMP and Versant have put out. And they say they're not reliable. They say that the vast majority of these projects that are in the pipeline actually will never be built or they're not going to be finished in time to take advantage of the, the net energy billing program. But this rhetoric has really gotten pretty heated in the past couple of weeks. And um, what's going to all going to come down to is it's the legislature that's going to have to figure out how to sort this all out over the next month and a half. And that's not going to be easy because it's a complicated, complex, very messy situation. And you have powerful and really deep-pocketed financial interests on both sides now, both on the solar side and the, and the utility side that have been ramping up their lobbying and their messaging campaigns in the past couple of weeks. Well, and the other thing they have to sort out too is, of course, as these community solar farms do come online, companies are offering ratepayers the opportunity to sign on and lower their own electric bills. So while on the one hand, there may be an increase in a CMP or Versant bill, uh, a lot of customers are seeing reductions the other way. Right. And that is happening. But Mr. Harwood held a press conference yesterday at the State House, And one of the points that he made and someone from his office made is that these can be confusing setups because a lot of times uh, customers are getting, you're getting a bill from CMP or Versant and you're getting a bill from the, the solar provider. And those numbers don't always match up. So he would like to see changes to that program as well. It's a complicated industry right now that's still growing. And I think the legislature needs to try to figure out a way to make it run smoothly and not cost ratepayers as much because everybody agrees that solar energy, most people agree, let's say, most people agree that solar energy and renewable energy are important and are needed to move towards a, a cleaner climate future. But uh, nobody wants to do it on the backs of ratepayers, as they say. I would just add real quick uh, th that, that this issue is, is a national one, and you're seeing it pop up across the country. In fact, California regulators last, I think it was in December, basically moved to reduce its subsidy program because of its ratepayer impact and was subsequently sued by environmental groups for doing so. So, it, you know, this kind of this tension between the ratepayer impact and the desire to expand renewable energy and, and encourage that uh, development, that tension is fraught. And I think we're, we're seeing the examples or local example of that right now. Well, the group No Labels was formed in 2010 by Nancy Jacobson to advocate for centrist solutions to the nation's problems. But it seems they now have a problem with Maine's Secretary of State, Democrat Shanna Bellows. Steve Missler, what's going on there? So Secretary of State uh, Bellows has sent this letter to No Labels, essentially accusing it of mischaracterizing its intentions and deceiving voters. Now, No Labels activists have been trying to build a platform for a so-called presidential unity ticket that's basically designed to appeal to voters who are disenchanted by the two main political parties and more specifically, it's presidential nominees. Other groups have tried this. Uh, I did some reporting on a group called Americans Elect more than a decade ago, which was attempting attempting a similar maneuver in 2012, but ultimately failed. What's interesting here, though, is that Secretary Bellows is essentially saying that no labels isn't making its goals clear to voters as it circulates petitions um, and that they are and not telling them that they are effectively signing up to join a new political party, the no labels party. The group rejects that characterization and says that it's been acting on the guidance of state election officials. But the other thing that's going on here is that there's a lot of distrust 
of no labels, especially among Democrats, because they believe that a so-called unity ticket could end up being a spoiler in a close presidential election and deliver the presidency to, say, Donald Trump, who is, of course, running again. And there's also some skepticism about no labels because it doesn't disclose its donors. There are reports that some of its donors are actually Republican mega donors like Harlan Crow, who has been in the news a lot lately uh, for his relationship with Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And one last thing, I, I mean, no labels has at times rejected the idea that it's trying to establish a new political party. There was a NPR report just in April in which its political director flatly denied that that's what it's trying to do. Uh, that obviously does not square with the statement that no labels provided in response uh, to Secretary Bellow's uh, cease and desist letter, where they admit that that's exactly what they're doing. I'll just add here that, that no labels have some interesting ties here in Maine. They helped create the bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus in Washington. And Representative Jared Golden's member of that. Uh, Senator Susan Collins has some affiliation with the group. And speaking to the point that, that Steve made about the concerns about elevating a third-party candidate who might hurt uh, Joe Biden this year, Elliot Cutler was actually a very early proponent of, of no labels. And he did this right after he came out of that campaign with, with Governor LePage in 2010. No Labels has been active here in Maine for, for some time. Well, it's Kevin Miller, our Statehouse reporter, along with uh, Steve Missler, our Statehouse Bureau Chief and Chief Political Correspondent. A reminder that uh, the podcast, Maine's Political Pulse, drops each Friday afternoon. You can hear a preview on Maine Public Radio's All Things Considered, or have us email you a copy of the Maine's Political Pulse newsletter. You can sign up for it at mainepublic.org slash pulse. Music is by Rob Holt. I'm Erwin Gratz. We hope you join us soon here on Maine's Political Pulse.